The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hand of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, out of them said, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere near the plain, in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in, our, in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it, it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot, Lot reached Zor, the sun had, re- had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew the cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. 
He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Amen. Thanks, Kate, for the Bible reading. Uh, isn't it a wonderful thing that we can meet together like this each week? And what a wonderful day God has given us. Uh, why don't we take a little moment to uh, move around, greet each other, and as we do that, uh, the owner of a white BMW, I wish this was my car, but it's not, your light is flashing, so ZAB087. I wish it was mine, but it's not mine. So why don't we spend a couple of, uh, a short moment moving around and greeting each other. A white BMW, that was. Okay, well, let's uh, return to our seats. And a reminder that after this service, we do have a feast out back, so please join us for that. Now, the passage today, I'm not sure what you felt or how you found it as the Bible was read, but it's not an easy passage. It's quite a disturbing and distressing one. But it's written in Scripture for our benefit. Scripture's for our benefit. Uh, that we might know of God and know better of ourselves. But it's a tough passage, so let's turn to God and ask him for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this uh, difficult bit of scripture, we pray, Lord, that you might give us wisdom, that we might receive this as it really is, the word of God, that we might learn of who you are and learn more of ourselves. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if you've been watching the news lately, but what are the stuff that has been making our headlines in this past week? Well, one thing was Australia getting a seat at the United Nations Security Council. That's a big achievement for our country. Another, another bit of news that made our headlines, Lance Armstrong, winner of seven Tour de France. was a drug cheat. Another one, well, this has been the excitement of many people, Obama and the Romney election stuff, coming up very soon. Now, these are the stuff that are making our headlines at the moment. But once in a while, once in a while, there are news that come on the headlines that are a bit different, a bit shocking, somewhat unbelievable. Now, it's not this I'm talking about, <laughs> the Gandam style. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that. Again, as shocking as that might be, but that's not what I'm referring to. Once in a while, there is, there is some headline, some news that's just heart-wrenching, 
that just breaks my heart when I hear of it. And it's used like this. So remember this was in April of 2008. It was a news report that really just swept the world. Not sure if you remember, but it was a story about this guy. His name was Joseph Fritz. He was arrested for this most distressing, disturbing, horrific, sickening crime. Not sure if you remember that. But this man, he locked his daughter away in his cellar for 24 years. Imagine that, 24 years. When I heard of this news, oh, my inside just churned. Some of us are not even 24 years old here. This daughter, locked away for 24 years, she was locked away when she was 18 years old. And over those 24 years, she was assaulted by her father. Physically, sexually abused, she was treated like a slave. Just imagine that. How could anyone do such a thing, let alone in this case, where the father did it to his daughter? But the story got more shocking as more information was revealed. Over those 24 years, this incestuous relationship with his daughter resulted in the birth of seven children. Is that shocking or what? Just heart-wrenching, churns my inside. Remember that in 2008. And so when we do hear stories like this, I'm left asking, and I'm sure you're left asking as well, will the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will there be justice? Will the bad people of the world get what they deserve? Will the good people of the world get what they deserve? Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? And that was Abraham's question in this passage. And so as we look at our passage today, it's a bit like this news report. It's shocking. It's distressing, it's disturbing. How could such a thing happen? God was disgusted by what he saw. And so God says in verse 20, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. Now Abraham was informed by God what was about to happen. God told Abraham that he was going to check this out. Check out Sodom to see what the sin was like. And so God was telling Abraham that he was planning to destroy this city. Now Abraham had a nephew by the name of Lot living in that city. And so Abraham, what does he do? Well, he pleads to God. He pleads to God to spare the city because he had a nephew in there. And so Abraham, he asked God questions. Will the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham asked, surely you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And then Abraham engages in a bit like a bargaining conversation with God. He says, if there are 50 people, God, 50 righteous people in this city, will you spare the whole city? And then he pushes us further. If there are only just 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or just 10 righteous people in this city, Will you spare the whole city for the sake of those ten? And what does God say? Well, God says, yes, he will spare the whole city for the sake of ten righteous people. Now, do you see what Abraham was doing there in that conversation? 
It wasn't just bargaining like what we see at Victoria Market. He wasn't just bargaining with God. What he was, in fact, trying to do was a lot more philosophical. He was trying to understand what God's justice is like. He's trying to work out what's the extent of God's judgment. And he's trying to work out what's the extent of God's mercy, you see. He's trying to work out how will God judge. Will God just judge the wicked people and save the righteous? Or will God save all the wicked people because of the righteous, you see? He was engaging in some philosophical questioning with God. So he's trying to work out the extent of God's mercy. So what was God's justice like? Well, that's what we're left asking. And so the story progresses. Two men, two angels, two messengers, they approach and they enter this city into Sodom. Lot, he's there in the middle of the city and he convinces these two strangers to stay with him that night. He shows them generous hospitality. Now, he probably wasn't aware that these were angels, that they have come to judge that city. And so he showed them this type of quite generous hospitality. And it's a hospitality that, that's typical of the ancient Orient. It, it's also still um, what we see today in the Middle East. They're just very hospitable people, even to strangers. And so that's the type of hospitality we see here. He's offering to wash their feet. Just think about that, washing the feet of strangers, feeding them and giving them a place to stay for the night. Now that's the culture, very hospitable. I remember one mission um, trip I did in Parramatta in Sydney. We were door knocking in this um, area where there were a lot of Iranian refugees. Now, what we were doing, where we were out there trying to convert people to Christianity, to tell them about Jesus, the wonderful news of Jesus. And, and to our surprise, knocking on these doors to these Iranian people, we were in one, one situation where this Iranian man welcomed us in. How strange is that? I mean, we talk to Australians and they think we're strange and weird. But this Iranian man from a different religion would welcome us in. We sat down, we had a good long chat. And that just shows the type of hospitality of that culture. That was what Lot was showing. And that Iranian man, they, he even made us coffee. It was only instant coffee, but it was very hospitable nonetheless. And so Lot here shows generous hospitality, typical of the culture, typical of the ancient Orient. And that night, something quite disturbing happens. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4 of chapter 19. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, what's going on there? Extremely disturbing, isn't it? They were meant to show generous hospitality. That was the culture. But yet here they turned on them. They wanted to in a sense, abuse these visitors, these strangers. But what's also more disturbing is what Lot does. He offers his two daughters. That's just craziness, isn't it? Offers his two daughters. But that shows the culture. When you invite a guest into your home, it's your responsibility to protect the guests, to to look after their safety. But the men, they refused. 
The men of the city, they refused. They moved down to break the door. And so in, on that night, we get a glimpse of what that city is like. God came down to see what that city was like. And we get a glimpse there. A city that's wicked, that's evil, that's perverted. And God has come to judge them. So what happened? Well, the two angels, they reached out, they took, they grabbed Lot, pulled him back into the house, and they struck the men with blindness. And they told Lot, they warned Lot, now tell everyone in your family, flee this place, this city will be destroyed. And so what does Lot do? Well, he warns his sons-in-law. He's warning them, and they responded, you're joking, Lot. You're kidding. No way will this city be destroyed. That will not happen. But then finally, as dawn approaches, Lot was still hesitating. His sons-in-law were refusing to go with him. But then those two men literally grabbed Lot, his wife, and the two daughters out of the city. And they said said to him, flee for your lives. In verse 17, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. And so the family was led to safety. God then rained down fire and sulfur on the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everything and everyone was destroyed in those two cities. And then Lot's wife, she turned back. She looked back. It shows that she was hesitant. She didn't really trust what the angel was saying. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, just a little aside, a little bit of interesting archaeology. We're not exactly sure where Sodom and Gomorrah were or are now. But many archaeologists think that it's towards the south of the Dead Sea. And there, there are large deposits of salt and, and it still reeks of sulfur today. And so people think that's there. But anyway, by the end of this story, these two cities were destroyed by God. Only Lot and his two daughters survived. So God has acted out in judgment. God has shown his justice. God has shown Abraham what his justice looks like. Only three survived. It shows that there weren't ten righteous people in that whole city. Only three survived. That was the extent of God's judgment. And so that's our story. Quite a disturbing story. Quite a shocking story. But you see, this account now, the, the words, the city, Sodom and Gomorrah, has in fact now become a paradigm of wickedness and evilness, hasn't it? We, we hear of that term, don't we? Sodomy or the sodomy laws. Have you heard of that term or those laws? Now, the sodomy, sodomy laws, Australia used to have these laws. They were laws uh, that criminalise homosexual activity. But all the states of Australia have since repealed these laws. In Victoria, it was in 1981. And in Tasmania, Tasmania was the last to repeal these laws, and that was in 1997. It was decriminalised. But you see, from what happened here in Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah has become like a byword of the type of sin and of the type of evilness Now, I want to ask us, what are we to think about this? What are we Christians to think about this? What are we to say about this? 
I think we need to be sensitive. We need to be compassionate here. The Bible does make clear that in God's eyes, homosexual activity is evil. It's wicked. It's the sin, part of the sin of the city of Sodom. It's not the way that God created the world. We've seen that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's not the way God created human relationships to work. But though this is what the Bible teaches, I want us Christians to remember that we are not homophobic. We can't be. We shouldn't be homophobic. We don't condone these activities, but we don't condone other activities just as such as greed and gossiping and slandering and lust. But even though we don't condone, it doesn't make us homophobic. So I want us to remember that. We are meant to be a community that expresses the love of God. Love of God to all that come, to all around us. We want all to come and to be transformed by God's love. Transformed into a life that pleases God. So that those who do have same-sex attraction, we want them to be transformed. So that they will live a life that's pleasing to God so that they won't be acting on those attractions. You see, having the attraction itself is not in itself a sin. It's when you act on it, same way as the heterosexual person. We can be tempted in many ways, but it's not a sin until you, you act on those temptations. And so we want people to be transformed by the love of God, just as we want the greedy person to be transformed. Transform so that they're not greedy but generous. Just as we want those who tend to gossip to be transformed. Transform so that they don't gossip but praise others. Now I thought this was a little aside that I need to talk about. To remind us Christians that we are on about loving. Loving people. Loving sinners in a sense. Because we ourselves are sinners ourselves. We're no better. We need to be reminded of this, that we treat all with love and respect. doesn't mean we condone the practices. But we treat others with love and respect. Because we ourselves, wretched people, have been loved by God. So that was a little aside. And so let's come back to this. Sodom, a paradigm of wickedness. A paradigm of evilness. And when we look at this story... I suspect that many of us will be appalled by what happened, what was recorded here in this passage. How could the people of Sodom be so ruthless? But now let me ask you this question. We look at this story and we think, that is disturbing, that is disgusting. But have we moved on? What do you think? Is the city of Melbourne any better than the city of Sodom? Is this world any better than what it was back then? Have things changed? Have we become more moral as we advance in medicine, technology and sociology and all sorts of stuff? Have we become more moral in our behaviour? Have we progressed? Are we better than what it was back then? What do you think? Have we moved on? Well, that report at the beginning, that story, that news about Joseph Ritz, that shows that wickedness still survives. 
Wickedness is still all around us. It's still here. Now, some of us might think that that was an isolated incident. It was only in Austria. It doesn't really represent how people are around the world. But this might surprise you, what I'm about to tell you. 1999 in France, same thing. A father abused a daughter. Daughter locked away for 28 years. And the daughter gave birth to six children by the father. That was France. 2008 in England, a man arrested for that same thing. Two daughters this time, 25 years locked away, fathering seven children with them. And in Colombia, 2009, a man was arrested, imprisoning, abusing his daughter for 25 years, giving birth to 11 children. Italy, March 2009, another man arrested, imprisoned his daughter, abused her daughter for 25 years. So that was France, England, Colombia, Italy, and Austria. And we think, well, that's all over in Europe and across across the world, across the other side of the world. It's not us. Aussies, we're not like that, are we? In Maui, only one and a half hours away from here, February 2007, a man was arrested for imprisoning, abusing his daughter for 30 years. She fathered, She bore four children by her father. What has this world come to? Are we any better than the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? Have we moved on? Have we progressed? Are we more moral now? Doesn't look like it, does it? Doesn't look like it. Not much has changed. And God will come in judgment. Just as God has come in judgment then, God will come in judgment again. But this time it will be final. What will God's judgment look like? Well, look at this passage. Look at what Jesus says. This is from Luke chapter 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man, that is Jesus talking about himself, People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this. On the day, the Son of Man is revealed. So you see what Jesus is saying there. Jesus refers to these two big catastrophic events, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And Jesus is warning there will be another day where judgment will happen again. But this time, judgment will be final. And people will go on with life, with the business of life, eating, drinking, getting married, doing business, shopping, without realising that judgment day is coming. God's great and final judgment day of this world. But this time round, it will be far worse. It's the final judgment. The last book of the Bible talks about the final judgment. And this judgment is one where the wicked 
will be tormented forever and ever. It's a punishment that will last, that will go on. You don't just die and disappear. It's a punishment that goes on forever and ever. Now, as I said last week, I really don't take any pleasure in speaking about God's judgment, in speaking about God's punishment, in speaking about hell, because it's horrifying. It's terrifying to think about being tormented forever and ever and ever. But Revelation speaks, the wicked will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And that great judgment day is coming. Now when we hear of the news at the beginning and all those evil people, we might be thinking, oh yes, judgment day is coming. That's a good thing, isn't it? It means that God will deal with all the people like Joseph, uh, Fritz and all those like him. And so we're thinking, yes, come on, Judgment Day. But do you see the problem with that? In thinking that way. Because the typical Aussie, we think we're all right. We think that we're among the righteous. That we're not the wicked people like Joseph, and we're not. But we think we're among the righteous. That we're like Lot in this story. In the midst of wickedness around us, we're like Lot and we have this, this hope and trust that God will somehow spare us just like he did with Lot. But you see, here lies the problem. And the problem is that God doesn't see us as righteous. It's actually very optimistic of us to think that we're righteous. It's actually, we're just kidding ourselves in fact, to think that we're righteous that we're right with God, that we've lived a perfect life. You see, being righteous is not, it's not just living a perfect life, obeying all of God's laws. It's in fact about having a relationship with God, being right with God. And that is not ours by default. God does not consider us righteous. Even the little flaws in our lives, God loathes. Now, this is not too hard to prove. And I've got one test for you. Now, from the outside, I know most of you, you guys are pretty good-looking people. And I've met you, and you are easy to chat with, to get along with. But you see, I can't see inside your heart. I can't see inside your thoughts. And I'm sure you would not like me to see inside your hearts and inside your thoughts. Because if I did, you would be ashamed. And likewise, you can't see inside my heart. You can't see inside my mind. And if you did, I will be ashamed. I will be embarrassed. I'll be like standing here naked. That's how embarrassed I'll be. If you saw inside my heart. But you see, that's what God sees. God sees inside your heart. God sees inside our heart. And God declares we're not righteous. We are not righteous. In fact, we're wicked. We're wicked people because we do not have a right relationship with God. We might not be as bad as Joseph Ritz, but we are wicked nonetheless. And so if this is the case, how could anyone escape this judgment that Jesus speaks of, this coming wrath of God that Jesus speaks of? How can anyone be spared Well, why was Lot spared? Let's turn back to this story. 
Why was Lot allowed to live? Was he spared because he was a righteous person? Well, the story seems to suggest that he was pretty good, right? He was different to those around him. He showed hospitality to the guests. But if you look closely at this story, that was not the reason for why he was spared, why he was saved. Look at this verse, Genesis 19, verse 29. This was why Lot was spared. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought, it, brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You see what that's saying? The real reason for Lot's rescue was not his own righteousness. He might be, appear to be a righteous person and he perhaps was, he was different. But that's not the reason given here. The reason was that God remembered Abraham. The man who was righteous. The man who believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now do you see the significance of that? That gives us a clue to how we might be saved in light of this coming judgment of God. How might we be saved? How can anyone be saved in the Sodom of today? Well, it's not on the basis of our righteousness. Not on the basis of our righteousness. God doesn't see us as righteous. But on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one God sent into this world to show mercy to the wicked, to show mercy to us, the one who dies on the cross to experience God's judgment for us. And so when God remembers Jesus, just as God remembered Abraham and spared Lot, God remembers Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, and spares those who believe in him. All the world, everyone who believe in Jesus, they will be spared because of the righteousness of Jesus. And so that is what we're on about, isn't it? Us as Christians, that is the gospel message. That is the Christian message. It's a message of good news. Because it's a message of God's love, what God has done. But you see, the gospel message, we don't often see it this way, but it's also a message of judgment. So each time we share the gospel, we share about Jesus, we share about the love of God, we're in fact also sharing about his judgment. Where, in a sense, each time we're sharing, we're doing what Lot did, warning his sons-in-law, we're warning people of the coming judgment of God. And this is what we all are to be involved in as Christians. Now, some might accuse me and accuse us Christians as, uh, of using scare tactics. Have you heard of that? You're just trying to scare people into believing what you believe? Are we using scare tactics? We well, see, it's not scare tactics. It's only scare tactics, in fact, if it's not true. If it's not true, well, that is scare-taking. You're just trying to coerce people. But because this is true, because we do understand how horrifying, how terrifying that eternal torment will be, it's not scare tactics. It's, in fact, the most loving thing we can do to warn people, just like what Lot did. Now, I'm a parent... 
And, I, and before we had kids, and while Yvonne was pregnant, for all our kids, we asked each other, what do we want for this child? What's the most important thing we want for this child? The typical Asian family will say we want them to have the best education, to go to university, to be smart, to earn heaps of money. That's very typical, and I hear that also often. But we were thinking hard about this. What do we want? Well, before our kids were born, we prayed to God, begging God, pleading to God that they might escape God's coming wrath, that they might come to know the love of Jesus, that they might be saved. That's the most important thing that I want for our kids, for our three kids. I just cannot bear the thought of them just getting even hurt on the playground, breaking a bone or cutting their wrist hurting themselves. I just can't bear the thought of that. How much more so? just cannot bear the thought that they will be suffering in eternal torment. I just cannot bear that thought. And so before our kids were born, we pleaded with God. We prayed to God, please save our kids. Not on their righteousness, say, but on the righteousness of Christ. And that should be our attitude for all those around us. We don't need to search far and wide. Just think about those in your family. There is judgment coming. Have you warned them? Have you told them? This judgment is coming and we can't stop it. Have you warned them? Now, as we do this, people might think we're crazy. People might think we're joking. Lot's sons-in-law thought Lot was joking. But we must continue, mustn't we? Continue to persevere, to warn, to proclaim the goodness of God, his love and mercy. And we do that out of love, for their sake, not for our sake. And so, for those of you who are not yet believers, let me urge you to take this seriously. There is this coming judgment. God has come in judgment in the past and there is this far greater one that will come. Let me urge you to take this seriously, to consider the escape that God has for you, believing in Jesus. So now we come to the end. How will the judge of all the earth do what is just? Will he do what is just? Well, yes, he will. You see, God will judge the wicked. The wicked will be punished. People like Joseph will be punished. They will be dealt with by God. And not only that, people like us will be dealt with by God. But you see, God is much more than a God of justice because the God of the Bible is a God of mercy a God of grace, a God of undeserved love, the God who out of mercy because of the righteousness of Christ would spare us. Let me finish now with this verse that Paul says, and I want us all, hopefully it's about to say this for ourselves. Paul says, What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.